Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we will start with my guest bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. A special thanks to Capital Factory in Austin, Texas, which is where this episode is being recorded. This week, I am joined by my guest, Catherine Gonzalez. Catherine Gonzalez, the Lone Star Diva, is a transgender speaker, educator, and advocate for the LGBTQIA community. Catherine is the co-author of Trans Plus, Love, Sex, Romance, and Being You, a growing up guide for trans and non-binary youth, and the Operations and Programs Director at OutYouth, an Austin-based nonprofit that has served LGBTQIA youth for 30 years. Catherine has worked in the nonprofit sector, specifically youth advocacy and organizing, for 15 years. She has facilitated statewide lobby days, organized statewide conferences on youth leadership and empowerment, and created the Queer Youth Media Project during her time at the Austin Gay and Lesbian International Film Festival. In 2017, Catherine co-founded the Central Texas Transgender Health Coalition, which supports the health and well-being of the transgender and gender non-binary community. She also serves as the vice chair of the City of Austin's LGBTQ Quality of Life Commission, which advises the Austin City Council on issues relating to the quality of life of queer people in the city of Austin. Catherine's research into the Evolutionary importance of storytelling in our everyday lives heavily influences her work and always seeks new ways for youth to share their stories with the world. Catherine! Brie! How are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I miss you. That lipstick is working. Thank you. It was a Christmas gift from a friend. It's Fenty. So I feel like I have to wear it every day because Brianna, obviously. Yeah, you know, trying to zhuzh it up these days. Wear a little makeup to the office. Fantastic. I miss you. I don't see you. I used to work with Catherine at Out Youth, so I don't see her every day now, which is very hard. <laughs> but and here weird. We I know. I still have that thing where I turn around and it's like, where'd Brie go? I'm not there. Where's Brie? Why is Brie not in the office today? Oh. It's been very bittersweet. I miss Out Youth. I still talk about it a lot. Actually, we had an event the other night at work, um, and one of our one of my coworkers, his wife works at Kind, and so we went down the out youth rabbit hole for like twenty minutes <laughs> talking about how great it is. So I'm still there, but I'm not there. Yeah, how have you been? It's been a busy time of year. Out youth turns thirty officially in April. Oh, that's insane. Um, we are expanding quickly. Mm-hmm serving more people. We have some new programs in the pipeline that I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about. Okay. But let's just say that lots of interesting things going on 
uh, kind of all coming together at once. That's great. That's exciting. And then y'all's spring fundraiser's coming up. I just talked to DJ Lolo the other day for a different thing, and she told me that she's DJing again this year. So I'll be there. Very excited. Is there anything else you want to share that I didn't share in that wonderful bio of yours? No, I wrote it myself. (laughs) I revise it every time somebody asks for something. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm trying this new thing where I, like, send out the run of show and like tag people on the tasks they have to put in because otherwise they're like I don't know what to write here I'm like but I was like it's very helpful I was like I know Catherine will just be the most perfect no shade to my other guests but it's Catherine so okay well what topic did you want to talk about this week I know we're gonna talk about your book Mm -hmm. which I haven't read yet because life which I'm waiting for the audio version (laughs) that I want you to record girl same (laughs) anyone out there who wants to let Catherine record her book let me know because well it's not (laughs) That's how I this am works willing. in my brain. We are waiting for the publisher to uh, Pish posh. get to that point. I <laughs> want Catherine's book on Audible. Thank you. Just my one request right now in life. Um, I know we want to talk about your book. We want to talk about representation with you doing a lot of work outside of just out youth, but also around the city. I want to know how you got into that work. Sure. And then we'll also see like where life leads us. But you decide where we start today. Let's start with the book. Okay. That's why you invited me in the first place, I think. Yeah. So uh, my dear friend, Karen Rain, and I wrote Trans uh, or Trans Plus. There is some uh, disagreement out in the world (laughs) about how to say that. There's a plus there. (laughs) Uh, There is a plus there. Um, So Trans, Love, Sex, Romance, and Being You. Uh, It's really intended to be the growing up guide that I wished I had had Hmm. as a teenager put a lot of love and maybe not sweat. We did write it inside. But still. (laughs) Uh, But lots of love in this book. How long did it take you to write it? From start to publish, about two years. But actual writing time, 10 months? Mm -hmm. Very fast. But it was my first book. I didn't know that that was actually fast. Yeah. I was like, only two years? (laughs) Yeah, from the very first conversation Karen and I had and then putting draft or proposal material together, uh, talking with the publisher, making sure that I was comfortable with them, signing contracts, finding illustrators, all of that. Yeah, about two years. Yes. And how do you know Karen? Karen and I met when I was a consultant. Mm-hmm. She was working with Scarletine, scarletine scarletine.com, which is still very much in existence and one of my favorite resources for young people around sex and sexual health. Hmm. Uh, Scarletine was trying to make some big moves, and I was brought in to consult a little bit. Uh, Did not stay very long. They actually had most of their stuff already together, Mm -hmm. and I was just brought in, I think, for an overview to make sure that. They weren't missing anything. But then Karen and I were in touch ever since. And how long have you been in Austin? I arrived in 2003, so this will be 17 years. Okay. Wow. Almost two decades. Don't do this. (laughs) We're right there. Don't do this. Um, I think one of my biggest things, too, is how out and proud you are and how connected you are and... How much you command a room. I remember when we first met, 
Catherine interviewed you interviewed me for the job I had at you, and I was terrified when I left. I was like, I did not get this. You're a very hard person to read. And so I was like, that's it. Like, I called their friend, like, I don't think I got it. They're like, why? I'm like, the woman Catherine, she's just real intense. And now I know you're like, oh, that's just Catherine. <laughs> she's just a very intense person. Well, intense, and it's uh, it's practiced. Yeah. I, I don't come by it by accident. And yeah. part of it has to do with working with youth. True. That uh, it was not something that I ever imagined I would do. I come from a family of teachers and had always kind of assumed that I would end up as a teacher, most likely a band director. Um, Interesting. But knowing who I was and not seeing anyone like me in that profession, I had written it off very early. Mm. And so when the opportunity to work with youth came back around, uh, I would like to say that I jumped at it, but I didn't. I was very worried about Mm. what that meant. Yeah. And did not trust myself to work with them. And, you know, after all of these years, I can't imagine doing anything else because as much as everyone likes to tease and joke about them, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers are some of the coolest people on the planet. Agreed. Because they uh, aren't walking around with decades of baggage. Mm-hmm. They have very few filters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because they have very few filters, they are in most cases, very vulnerable and don't mean to be. Yeah. And so it gives us a very unique look into their world. And in that vulnerability and that honesty, we can see what's going on and try to intervene earlier and make their lives better uh, than what we had. Yeah. I also really noticed that, like, the youth we worked with weren't jaded, which I guess, like you're saying, comes with, like, years of baggage, but just seeing, like... Just being in the room when they were having conversation, like not even participating in it, but just like the open, honest ability to just sit in a conversation and know their job isn't to convince the other person. It's just to like talk about things. One day they were talking about the difference between being pan and bi and queer. And it was just really interesting to hear that conversation because I think even now, like as a person who identifies as queer, people are still trying to bucket me into pan. And I'm like, no, I like I like the reclaiming of the word queer. And a lot of people don't know what pan is. So for me, it's easier just to say that. But I think as a cisgender woman, people automatically just think I'm straight. And so when I sort of out myself every time I talk to people, it's just like, well, what kind of queer are you? And I'm like, no, I'm just queer. Like, so like hearing them have those conversations, like you don't have to like put a label on you to just be in these spaces. Um, and also like hearing that like, they aren't quote unquote coming out. It's more like they're just like bringing home partners or just, you know, telling people like, oh, I'm trans or non-binary or just like, I don't conform to any sort of any of gender. So I think that was like one of my favorite things of watching the work that we got to do there is just watching these youth and young adults just really own who they were so freely. So, yeah. The greatest honor of my life is working with them. Even when they annoy me. That's their and job. even when they talk over each other. And even when there's friend drama. And even, and even, and even. It, on and on it goes. I would not change, change it or trade it for anything. How, I guess I really also don't know, like, I know you've been at Out Youth for 15 years, but how did you get there? So one of the things that most people don't know about me is that I'm profoundly hard of hearing, um, My hearing loss came on slowly, starting in childhood, 
And so I've adapted in a way that allows me to interact in the world without many people being able to know that I have that kind of um, superpower. Mm -hmm. So in 2005, I was very much involved in LGBTQIA plus organizing at UT Austin. Out Youth was one of the organizations that I was somewhat aware of. And it just so happened that Out Youth was going to do uh, a rally at the state capitol. And they had a couple of deaf youth at the time. They really needed an interpreter to come and interpret the program for them but could not find one. And so I went and interpreted as best I could, mm. considering I couldn't hear everything going on. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was my very first introduction in 2005. And then volunteered off and on for several years until when I owned my consulting firm, I was approached by Out Youth's executive, uh, executive director at the time and asked to come on as a resource development consultant. And so consulted for several years, finished my MBA, and through a series of events realized that I did not necessarily want to operate a consulting firm anymore. And so sat down with our current executive director, Opry, and said, you know, I think I would really like to have an official job here. At which point Opry said, well, we've been trying to hire you for five <laughs> years. And I said well, then I guess the first thing I need to do is work on everyone's communication skills because yep. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. totally missed that on both ends wow. and been around ever since. I love that. I I really love that. I think mostly because, again, having the privilege to watch you every day at work and like essentially like to know that this job was just waiting for you to accept it is just really beautiful to me and just, yeah. This is why I miss you every day. <laughs> I'm not going to not going to cry today. It's fine. I guess also like leaning in from that, you know, we're doing the work at Out Youth and I know you and I sort of have ta talked about the work you're doing with the city. And I guess I kind of want to break down on that because I feel like there's a lot of different quality of life stuff going on. Um, I, I now work at a well, a company that uh, is creating software to help with political campaigns. And so with me, I'm still like that day-to-day -day learning of like how all this stuff works. So we'd really love a breakdown of what it is you do on the Quality of Life Commission. Yes. And what, you know, what, how'd you got involved with that and all that sort of stuff? So at the city of Austin, uh, there are several boards and commissions that exist where people tend to get confused is in how Austin's city government works. So one of the ways that education has failed the populace of the United States is that, you know, I think by and large people get a rudimentary understanding of how national government works. Mm -hmm. They get a perhaps decent understanding of how state government works. And then from there, anyone is lucky to understand how county or local governments work. Mm -hmm. So I always like to start with, here's how Austin's government works. So we operate in what's called a 10-1 system, meaning we have 10 council people in 10 different districts and one mayor. 
and they make up the policy and decision-making arm of city government. Then on the other side, you have staff uh, led by the city manager, assistant city managers, directors, and on down. All of the boards and commissions serve at the pleasure of Austin City Council. Uh, and in some cases, like mine, I actually serve at the pleasure of my appointing commission. All of that is a very fancy way of saying these boards and commissions exist to recruit and have subject matter experts at the table where possible advising city council on matters that relate to their commission and the needs of the city. Mm. So in our case, the LGBTQ Quality of Life Commission exists to advise city council on how Austin can make the quality of life better for queer people. We do that in lots of ways, but the most accessible to folks is our monthly meeting, which is posted on the Austin uh, City of Austin website, so austintexas.gov slash LGBTQ. I believe that I was the first commissioner ever to ask for a custom URL Ooh, very for typical. a commissioner. <laughs> well, otherwise, very it's like austintexas.gov slash city dash clerk slash commission slash board slash... Uh, mm -mm. mm -mm. Also, Catherine's a tech nerd. I also want me Yeah, if it's got an on or off switch. So we are working on several initiatives right now. Pretty important important to us at the moment is our quality of life study. Mm. So one of the challenges that we've had as a commission, being relatively new, we are the newest quality mm. of life commission, we're going into year three. Mm -hmm. um, the way a commission advises city council is by making recommendations. We put together these formal recommendations of, hey, city council, we're the subject matter experts. Here's something that's going on. Here's what we think you should do about it. Mm. Then council can pick it up or not. They are not required to do anything that we say. Right. But one of the challenges we kept having, we would make these recommendations and the questions from community staff and sometimes council members would be, you know, this sounds good, but where's the data? Mm. What does the data say? Well, the city doesn't collect SOGI data, sexual orientation or gender identity data, for various reasons. Some of them very good and related to privacy. Some of them just because all the way on the other end of that spectrum, just nobody's thinking about it mm -hmm. or thinking about it, but don't know how to ask the question. Sure. So we kept getting this pushback of well, what does the data say? What does the data say? And ultimately what we were hearing in that was, well, if there's no data, we're, we can't take action. So I did what I'm assuming Bree is going to feel is very typical of me. I started answering that question with, well, you know, if there's not data that exists, I think it's only appropriate that we assume that everyone in Austin identifies as queer mm -hmm. until the data can prove otherwise. Yep. They didn't like that. Uh -huh. So then we got a study. <laughs> <laughs> so that will be kicking off. We are actually in the process of, I believe the RFP has closed. So they are reviewing all those applications and we should be launching a study in the next few months. Yeah. What I was very dedicated to and owe a lot to my fellow commissioners for listening to this piece of it, having been in the rooms and at the tables that I've been at over the last 15, 20 years, 
very common for people to come together, commission a study, have the study done, and then it sits on a shelf and nobody yeah. does anything with it. Right. That's not to say that it, other studies in the city of Austin have not been helpful. That's actually untrue. Mm -hmm. And I have personal experience from my days at the university that also proved that to be untrue. But what I also know from those experiences and from the experiences of folks that came before me is that when you intentionally design a study or a document, a book, <laughs> uh, from the beginning to be a certain thing, it often ends up being that thing. So we are very clear in the RFP that we want this study to be less about proving that we're here and having numbers that we can spit back mm -hmm. because ultimately that's not our job. Right. The commission's job is not to do a census of queer people in Austin. Mm -hmm. Our job is to advocate for our quality of life. So if the city wants data, the city needs to start collecting data. And we're working on that and yeah. having a lot of success there. It's also highlighting some other areas of data that is complicated for any city. Yeah. So my data nerd brain plus my queer brain combined is very nerded out about yeah. how that's all going to be handled. We want to make sure that this study not only includes but celebrates and raises up the voices of people who have been traditionally marginalized in the queer community and are often forgotten in these kinds of studies. Yeah. So queer people of color, trans youth, intersex people, elders, yeah. the elder voices so often left out. Uh, so prioritizing not only getting into those communities, those subgroups of the community, and making sure that we are capturing those needs and raising those needs above all else, but also making sure that we're capturing the stories. Because at the end of the day, if this can be a snapshot of queer history or the queer community in Austin in 2020, yeah. I mean, just thinking back 100 years ago and what the city was like, not a friendly place for really no. anyone that wasn't white and cisgender and straight mm -hmm. to now a hundred years later to have this diverse group of people coming together actively promoting a study and a process that will illuminate stories that often go untold is critical yeah i think that's a good place to take a break and then we come back we can talk about allyship within the lgbtqa plus community we'll be right back and we're back. Catherine and I are now going to talk about allyship within the community, which is a very close to home topic. For you, this is basically your work all the time. With me right now, it's Something that's really driving me, like all the community and public speaking I do, um, because people, I think people don't think that, I think people think because you're in the community, you don't have to also be an ally, which is not true. Um, I think be, people can get a little bit complacent and being like, well, I'm in the community, so like, why do I have to like go to all these different things? Um, so yeah, I want to just like kind of have a chat about that because it's one of the things that really annoys me <laughs> right now in this world. Um, so, yeah. I, one of the things that pops in my head first is 
we both know Alicia. Um, Alicia was on a couple episodes ago, and we talked about intersex stuff. Obviously, that's basically all her work right now. Um, and how intersex folks are still really left out of the conversation when we talk about LGBTQIA issues, um, mostly because intersex youth are being forced to have surgeries that are not necessary. Um, so I know one of the things that she always asks people to do is like make sure you say QIA+, plus, like include intersex in that acronym, but then also educate people after you say that, letting people know what it means. Uh, over the winter, I went to an HRC holiday party and the president of HRC was there and Alicia was out of town. So like I took it upon myself to ask him if he knew about intersex rights and intersex issues. And he said he knew a little bit about it. He's like, but people don't tend to ask him about it. And so with me, I was like, well, I need you to like do some research and I'll follow up with you <laughs> when I see you again, which he'll be in town this weekend um, and I'll be seeing him. But yeah, I, th- I think that people need to know that you can't just show it for yourself. Um, and that's also like with uh, Trans Day of Remembrance back in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the event at the library and then they asked me to like sit in the circle where they did like the memoriam for those we lost last year to violence. Um, but, you know, doing that work too of like, I was just there to show up and be supportive, but because people know about how closely I hold the importance of allyship to me, they asked me to kind of join in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've gotten to see you give speeches and do this and tell people about why it's important, but I wanted to really bring this up and give you a chance to kind of do a deep dive into it. Let's start here. Okay. The A and the acronym is not for ally. It is for asexual. I agree. That is... So I was mentioning debris during the break that one of the things that I do outside of my work at Out Youth is I consult professionally under the brand, the Lone Star Diva, which I got for showing up in Washington, D.C. once and being a diva. So I turned it into my business name. Um, you know, I'm the one that is called in when an organization is struggling with allyship to the LGBTQIA plus community. And one of the things that I often encounter from straight and cisgender allies is when I tell them that their letter is not part of the acronym, mm-hmm. um, they get offended and hurt, People have which then me. I use it for yep. an educational moment. But the reason why I teach it that way, uh, and I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of the entire community. I got in trouble for doing that once. Not going to do that again. Sure. Um, but I will speak for me that allyship is an action, not an identity. It can be an aspect of your identity, but it is not something that necessarily gets worn all the time. Mm -hmm. You can't be, um, or else you would be the thing that you are being an ally to. Um, So it can be at odds in that way. I think what happens, especially in the queer community, is that we forget that because we are marginalized that we think that we are already doing our part Mm -hmm. and it already sucks to be me so why do i need to go and defend somebody else when it already sucks to be me it's this this competition that doesn't do anyone any good Mm -hmm. one of the things that we struggle with 
most in the queer community right now, and it's something that Out Youth is actively undertaking, and Brie was instrumental in getting this off the ground, is we're, we're undertaking an anti-racist initiative. Mm. We're, we don't even know what to call it. We just we, we affirm that we are or want to be, which is still a question, anti-racist. Yeah. Um, because for too long, black and brown, people of color, uh, and the queer community have been ignored. Mm-hmm. And she's coming to mind, so I have to mention her. Um, we are actually naming our offices right now after influential queer people. And it is my deep and sincere and heartfelt honor to have my office named after Marsha P. Johnson a black trans woman who is widely regarded to have been the first one to throw a brick at Stonewall. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have a glitter brick at home for that sure. I keep for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, we must raise up those voices as a white, often cis-passing, until I open my mouth and talk all about trans stuff, um, queer person, who, because of my cis-passing privilege and my attraction to people who are masculine of center often get read as straight, Mm -hmm. I I have a significant amount of privilege that I choose to weaponize or mobilize. (laughs) Sometimes weaponize. Depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, And I know I don't always do it right. I think that's the core piece that often gets left out in these conversations and where I've had the most success professionally teaching about allyship. Do I want people to do it perfectly 100% of the time? Yes, of course I do. Yeah. Are they going to? No, we're all human. Right. So I always bring Ms. Frizzle into the conversation. An icon. You know, every time she'd pile those kids onto a bus to go on an adventure, she'd always say, what are we going to do? We're going to take chances, we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to get messy. But even Miss Frizzle wasn't perfect because she forgot to tell the kids that when you get messy, you got to clean it up. So allyship is an action in which you will be imperfect and people are going to chew you out mm-hmm. and you're going to do it wrong. You're going to say the wrong thing. It's all in how you clean it up and how you not repeat that the next time. Because for far too long, marginalized people have had to clean up the messes of everyone else. Yeah. And it's not only unfair, it's inhuman. So. I think about allyship too. I had a person who one day we were texting and they t- they tried to tell me that the A stood for allyship. And I was like, that's <laughs> no. I was like, it stands for asexual, maybe even a gender, you know, all the things. And this person was like adamant. It was like a whole conversation. It was also during Pride Month, which I was like, can we not? Um, but I think of allyship, like I think about Pride Month, like, for, well, I call it Pride Season. Between, like, in, in Austin, we have our Pride Month in August. So for me, it's like when I did work at Out Youth, it was like June to September was Pride Season for me. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the speaking engagements, lots of doing things. But I tell people, like, just as though, yes, we as queer people celebrate pride during pride month we are prideful all year you can't be an ally just one one month a year it's a 
it's a thing you have to constantly do. Like with being black, you can't just be Black History Month is only in February, but I'm also black <laughs> all of the time. Um, and that's like I'd be like being queer is, is who I am. Like there's no separation of that. Um, so I always tell people like you think about queer allyship, think of it how you would, you know, you yell Black Lives Matter or Trans Lives Matter and all the other things. Like you have to constantly be working towards making situations better. And the fact that like queerness is often seen with whiteness. Like white people are often centered with queerness. And I said this during one of our meetings when the Webster Dictionary decided to let the word they as a pronoun be the word of the year and how they really centered Sam Smith, the white singer from England, as the person that they wanted to focus on who uses they them pronouns, which was great. But also let's not forget that lots of brown and black communities have been using they them pronouns and pronouns of the such forever. Um, but white people took that away from us. And then now that they're sort of reclaiming it, it's also that thing of like retelling the story, but centering it around whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people really want need to understand that too, of like when you talk about allyship, it is not to center the ally, it is to center the people who you are trying to help. Yes. So. One of the things that always comes to mind in this is virtue signaling. And, um, you know, I used to really push back against the word woke, especially when white people would use it, because it's virtue signaling. And by its nature implies that somebody has arrived. Yeah. I am woke. That's the destination. That's that's yeah. the destination I have arrived. Very much like after President Obama was elected and we were declared post-racial. It's like, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, so when I get asked, do I consider myself woke? I always say no. I am in a continual process of waking. Yes. Because it is a process that will never end. Yeah. It can't. No. Because there will always be something else. And that can be intimidating and sound exhausting to people who hold a lot of privilege, Mm -hmm. who have not had to do this work. And I remind them that marginalized people have been doing this work forever, and they manage to do it every day. So even doing it an hour a day, or once a week, or God forbid, just during Pride Month, um, is still way less work than somebody who's having to live and fight against these systems of oppression, all these systems and institutions every day. Yeah. Yeah, I also, there's, I was watching this video on Instagram. There's this little girl named Taylor who's my new favorite, like, thing. She's seven years old and she's very fun. And this girl, Lizzie, stole her pencil and it was this whole big thing. And the story got really big. And so, like, all, like, the morning talk shows were covering it. And now Taylor's just saying, sitting there talking to her mom about, like, Lizzie stole my pencil. This is how it made me feel, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think people understand how racist our language is. And I think about that of, like, let me back up. So they were saying that, like, oh, my God, she's so sassy, which I was, like, She's seven and talking about why she's upset about why her pencil got stolen. But we also know that, like, black and brown children are 
forced to grow up quicker in the public eye. Like you will have people saying, oh, he's a black young man at like 10, but mm-hmm. a white boy will be white until he's like 20. Like it's this thing of well, like... Depending on what he's done that he got caught for, might right. be white boy until he's in Correct. his 30s. Correct. Um, but just really always making it seem as though these black and brown children and these bodies are seen as almost too much or like why are they trying to they're making a big deal out of things like no she was a little girl talking about a pencil like we all get it it's just a really cute funny moment but you calling her sassy you would they would never have done that to a little white girl ever and so I think about that too of like as we continue to talk about allyship is the language that you use to be an ally is so important and you in the work of being an ally, you have to constantly be educating yourself, which goes back to the the consistent, you know, constantly waking. Like, even me as a black person, I still mess up all the time. And I am on the same path of, like, wanting to be a good ally to different communities and other marginalized groups. But that means that I, I can't center myself. I can center those groups, but I have to keep doing the work to be up to date on terms and things that are and aren't appropriate to say. And... You know, as a person who is marginalized, and I've talked about this before, of like, it's exhausting to constantly have to tell white people why they're wrong and then ask you, and then they ask you to explain why they are wrong. If you are coming to me asking me a question and I'm giving you the answer, you are allowed to ask if it's going to help your understanding, but do not ask me a question in order to try to make me validate what you are saying. That's not my job. My job is trying to make you understand things, but not to, the, not to my detriment. And marginalized groups are, are able to say no because now we have Google so you can look things up. And I tell people, like, if you want me to educate you for an hour, this is the, the cost of it per hour. I used to do my out you three. <laughs> like, this is what it is when I would get paid at work to do this work. Then, that's, then I will talk to you all day about it. But it is not my job to emotionally exhaust myself in order to make the non-oppressed person be centered correct (sighs) that was a lot (laughs) but yeah it's true yeah it's so true and I think I think about this a lot when when we were having those meetings at work like I was the only black person on staff and so I felt I felt like I had to say something all the time I had to be the representation in the room at the time. Um, Yes, we had other people of color there, but I was the only woman of color working there at the time. And so I just felt like, I was talking to a friend last night, I'm like, I feel like as a person who does this work, if I don't show, I I would rather, I would rather be the one that's there and exhausted than no one be there at all. Um, I get asked to speak a lot, which I'm very grateful for, but I also know that there are other people in our community who are also doing good work, but people just see me and that's where they stop. And so I've been really trying to f- to uplift the other voices of other women and people um, doing this work in this community. So I also want people to sit with that for a minute of like, don't constantly ask the same person to do things because you are too lazy to go find the other people who are also doing this work. You have to look a little harder in your communities to make sure you are hearing from everyone because I can't answer for all black people. I can't answer for all black women. Like I am just me with the experiences that I have and my allyship to my own black queer community is to show up 
and make sure that a voice is heard. But if I can, I will always try to make sure that other people besides me are there. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about this. Sure. Um, also, I, I also get asked to speak a lot, mm-hmm. which I also appreciate. Um, and one of the things that I love the most, and this is may only be true in my experience, um, I love it when someone will reach out and say, we would love to have you speak. I know that you speak a lot. If you can't do this, who is somebody that you think would be wonderful to have at the table? Which does remove some of their responsibility to do the work. And in most cases, I don't know that the people that are asking could find these people in the first place. So it's always a judgment call. Mm -hmm. But I love being asked. I love right now in this moment for people to at least recognize that I'm not the end all be all expert and that there are other voices that can be at the table. Yeah. I'm not often asked. It's, Hey, we want, we want you to speak at this thing. Mm -hmm. Period. (laughs) Yes. I will say, Hey, I'll check my calendar, but also have you heard about blah, blah, blah. Yep. Or, I can't make it, but I recommend this person who does this work. This is their website. Like, I love that helping to get other people at the table because it's, again, not just about me and not the work that I am doing personally. So, yeah, I mean, any opportunity I can to connect other people, I love it. And also because my calendar is always a crapshoot. <laughs> so, well, let's yeah. be clear. I, do, I can't speak for Brie, but this is not done from a selfless place. This is done from a selfish place because 100%. if I am always at the table, people are going to get tired of me. Mm-hmm. I don't want any of you to get tired of me. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, I've talked about it before, but, you know, I've re- recently got back involved with HRC Austin, but this is what we dealt with a couple of years ago with them. And I texted you when I was messaging them and I was like, I was very annoyed with them. Um, Personally, I've been involved with HRC since I was 17 as a donor and volunteer and all that sort of stuff. And then when I moved here, I got really involved on a community level. Um, But then seeing that there were no black female of center folks at the events that I was going to um, really only saw people under the age of 30 every blue moon. Like they weren't really reaching out to the younger demographic. Um, And then you know, seeing all that stuff and then making the comment or they would ask me to join a steering committee or a volunteer committee. I was like, okay, what other black women have you asked this week? And like, well, we wouldn't even know like where to start. I'm like, you go out into the community and see people out living their lives. Like you have to do the work. I was like, I was like, I will join if you can give me three other people you have asked by the end of the month. And no one ever followed up. And that's something I called them out on. Which is why the last couple, maybe year and a half, I've been working with them to make it more diverse and more inclusive and what have you. And, you know, now I'm going to their gala on Saturday. I mean, I'm not paying for it. Um, A friend of mine is a member and I'm sitting at their table. Um, But I was working with HRC and telling them of like there are a lot of activists and people doing work here in Austin who deserve to be at HRC's events like this. But you're price ticket your ticket price isn't making it accessible for them i think you should allow these people at least x amount of people to go to be in these rooms 
to diversify the room to actually show that you care about these people just being there at no cost because you care about the community that you are serving. And they invited like 10 or 15 people of people who I told them about or other people told them about or, you know, they were able to see around the city the last year and a half doing this work. And I was just very, I was very proud of that to know that one, I was heard I was understood. It was clear what I wanted. And I had told them, like, if you, I told them, if you didn't make the effort to do more stuff that bought in communities, other communities besides white cis people, then I didn't, there was, there was no reason for me to be there because you clearly didn't care about my community as a person of color, as a woman, as a queer person, if you weren't going out and reaching out. And they did. So that is why I've really started going to more of their things and really, you know, supporting the work that they're doing. There's still some work to be done, but there's always work to be done. But at least now more work can be done because more people are at the table. It's not just my voice is going to be heard now. So I also think about that when we think of allyship of making sure you're bringing more people to the table. Yeah. One of my biggest things right now with allyship as well is politics. Because I do not endorse Buttigieg. If he gets the nomination, I'm obviously rooting for anyone who's blue. But I also want people to understand that just because Pete is gay does not mean you have to back him. And that's not why I don't back him. Obviously, if any person who is of the LGBTQIA community, I would absolutely vote for. And I love that he is in this election. But I also don't want people to erase the fact that just because he is a gay man does not mean that he is the correct choice for everyone. And I've had this <laughs> very big conversation with a lot of people lately about I should be in Pete's camp just because he is gay as a part of my allyship. And I'm one to not believe that. <laughs> And I don't know where to end this conversation, but I really wanted to sit because as a person who also pays attention to politics, I figured you would be a good person <laughs> to dive into this conversation about. Uh, I feel similarly to you. I, I appreciate the historic nature of having a member of our community vying for the highest public office, which up until 2016 would have been uh, leader of the free world. Mm -hmm. We abdicated that in 2016. I find it very interesting that a community that prides itself on the coming out process mm -hmm. of the saying, I don't fit in this box that was assigned to me or expected of me is trying to put people in boxes. Mm -hmm. And elevating Mayor Pete's identity as a sole qualifying factor to to serve us. Mm -hmm. And let's well let I'm gonna go on a soapbox here. Yes. So <laughs> Yeah. Now you got me started. <laughs> So yes. one of the things I'm seeing, especially around the impeachment stuff, is you know people, our leaders, our le they're not leaders. They are elected representatives, and they're not doing their job. Mm -hmm. And they work for us. Let's, they let's work not for us. Yeah. What did I tell you that? So one of the things that I find very hard as an introvert is reaching out and making my voice heard to elected representatives. I did not know this. Yes, I hate making those phone calls. 
So I brain hacked it, which was also the truth. Yeah. So I looked up all of the phone numbers for all of the people who are elected to represent me. And they are all in my phone in this group called People Who Work For Me. And now when I have to call through that list, it is a consistent reminder that when I call, I'm not asking or begging or pleading or supplicating myself to someone. Mm -hmm. They work for me. Absolutely. And I am calling to tell them how to do their job, mm-hmm. which makes me not ever want to run for office. Now, I think this is going to be really funny that this is going to show up in my campaign ad running for president in like 10 years. It's fine. She said she didn't want to run for office. It's fine. Anyway. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like to have what? Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, depending on what, as your boss? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Have you ever been tried, ever tried to be managed by two people? That's terrible. (laughs) Uh, So there is that piece of it that we are so willing to give up our power. Mm Mm-hmm. And part of that was intentional. I think the way that textbooks are written, the way that kids are taught about civics, all of those things mm-hmm. lead into us inching closer and closer to something that is distinctly not democracy and it would be incorrect. Yeah. Not even immoral or... Uh, inappropriate but incorrect to call democracy which i would also argue that we're actually in an oligarchy but that's that's a whole other soapbox we don't have time (laughs) for yeah i went to a convention over the summer and pete was there speaking and i also it was pete it was booker who we all know i'm in love with and Mm -hmm. julian castro and castro and booker were just so personable so they just made you want to make sure you register to vote, get involved as you, when you got back into your community, and pay attention to what's going on. I'd never have gotten that from Pete, which I know is very somewhat unfair to think about now. But I think about when Hillary was running and like, well, she's not personable and she's not this. I'm like, that's how I feel about Pete. Like, to me, if we're going to go off that, we have to be equal in that sense. Like, if you thought Hillary as a woman was impersonable, then I think Pete as a man is impersonable. But I also want to remember that he doesn't perform well in his own community. For all sorts of reasons that I recommend people Google. Google it. We don't have time for all of that. I'm not saying that he's not done some good things, but we are overlooking. Yeah, his numbers speak for itself, themselves. The most tragic example of gentrification that I remember in recent history. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just, I just, again, it's that thing of like people constantly say to me I can't believe you're not backing Pete he's gay and I'm like I can't believe you're only backing him because he is gay gay. I find that offensive yes 100% I'm like I'm not backing Elizabeth just because she's a woman I that's who I'm rooting for Um, but I mean I I feel almost like my intelligence is questioned when people tell me that. I'm like, no, like I legitimately work at a place now that I get to literally talk about politics all day. And it's because of that. I've been obsessed with politics since I was 10. Gore, Bush, Gore all day, obviously. But 
I think about that and how important politics are. So like for you to tell me I should vote for someone just because of how they identify, period, it's not happening. I didn't vote for Barack because he was black. <laughs> I voted for Barack because I align with his morals versus the person who was running against him at the time. Like, so I just want people to know that a, be registered to vote. <laughs> B, really understand that the people we elect to office work for us, like Catherine was just saying. Um, and do your research. See what they, how they perform in their communities. Bernie in Vermont, Elizabeth in Mass, Pete, where Pete is from. <laughs> like, really focus on the work that they have done and see if they are qualified to be president because, as we all know right now, the person who is currently in office... The bar is very low. The bar is on the floor. <laughs> oh, my God, Bree. It's one of my favorite out you stories. So, um, during the 2016 election, the youth... Uh, kept asking me when I was going to run for office, I'm still when I was going to run for president. And I was like, you guys, I'm not old enough yet. Mm -hmm. One. And two, I'm not qualified. And then 2016 <laughs> happened and they looked at me and they were like, now so, what? <laughs> like, what's your excuse now? You know, one of the things that it actually ties some of this very neatly together, our conversation about allyship and how you are not ever going to do it 100% perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of what we saw in the last election cycle of, well, Elizabeth is not qualified because she claimed to be Native American and that wasn't true and she is not satisfying um, certain standards of apology, which I'm not a fan of. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of how she's handled it. Sure. Um, I still like that the woman has a plan for everything. Mm. It, I want to be her when I grow up, I just mean, not the Native American thing. Um, Bernie is not perfect. Mm -mm. Pete isn't perfect. And I'm sorry, sweetheart. Booker wasn't perfect and either. I, please hold. I know that Corey is not perfect. I've just loved him since I was like 22 years old. Booker also wasn't like my choice for president, so it's fine. I, just as his future ex-wife, feel like I needed to be. Of course. And. And when it's also side. important in relationships to understand that people are not 100% perfect all the time. <laughs> yes. So it, all of this back and forth virtue signaling of, well, this person did this thing. It, 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 listen, people, if you want to dig into my history, I've done all sorts of stuff that I'm not proud of. I made my Twitter private today just <laughs> to be safe. Just to be safe. Uh, we all have something. Yeah. And it boils down to, one, have they – they've made a – They've taken a chance. They've made a mistake. They've gotten messy. Mm -hmm. How have they cleaned it up? Sure. Are they trying to clean it up? And do we trust them to not destroy the planet in all the different ways that our species is trying to destroy the planet? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite political cartoons from the last few years is um, the planet Earth is talking to Mars. Um, and... Mars is saying, oh, gosh, it looks like you got a real bad case of the humans. And then the next panel is uh, like a NASA spaceship traveling to Mars and Mars freaking out because now it's going to have a real bad case of the humans. Yeah. That there is something about the human ego that we must always be right and never admit when we're wrong or doing something that is not virtuous. Mm -hmm. And it's going to kill us. Maybe not now, maybe not this generation, but one of the things that challenges me as a person who would very much like to have a child, would very much love to be a parent 
and have different ways that I could go about that. I don't, I don't want to be responsible for bringing a child into a hellscape without their consent, mm-hmm. which is impossible, Yeah. In at least in the biological way of having yeah. children. Um, but it's hard every day. And until we figure out that piece of this work, they fear it won't get better anytime soon. Yeah. So we'll keep going. We, we always do. I think that feeds in nicely to the conversation we want to have about raising children. We'll be right back. And we're back. (laughs) I have been thinking the last week or so about becoming a parent, probably through adoption, and living in Texas, knowing that in our current political climate, for me to adopt a baby in Texas as a queer person may be difficult. And then also having that same concern of like deciding to raise a, raise a child uh, in, a, in circumstances that aren't ideal. Just want to talk to you about that, about how you feel about that, what what that looks like for you. Um, I did some self-reflection last week and realized that I had been dating to look for a person to co-parent with and not a person to be in partnership with, um, which put a lot of pressure on my dating lives and on myself. Um, and I realized that the pressure to find a person to co-parent with, because being a mom is very important to me, Um, But then also, like, having lost my mom when I was really young, and then I stopped talking to my dad. And so I often think about or was thinking about how would my child's life look if something happened to me? If I was a single mom, would I be enough for that kid? Would they feel like they're missing out on a two-parent household? And all these, like, societal pressures I was putting on myself, Mm -hmm. which I have now let go of and realized my kid will have a community around them. It will legitimately be a village. Um... And yes, I will technically probably be a single mom, but my kid and I will be loved and surrounded by people and we'll be fine. So join in. <laughs> I want to hear your thoughts. Being a parent scares the crap out of me. 100%. Um, one of the things that is helpful, though, is coming to understand that, no, again, it always comes back to this perfection piece that no parent is perfect. Every parent is going to mess their kid up in some way. Mm -hmm. I think the job and the goal of every parent should be to do that as little as possible Uh because therapy is expensive. Mm -hmm. Actually, therapy should also be free for everyone, but that's a whole separate soapbox. I think where I see a distinction between having a child that is biologically mine versus adopting is that having a child biologically brings a new life into the world, whereas adopting ensures that a child who is already here and may not have access to a loving family, a village, a community, gets that. So I do not mean for that to sound virtue signaling, that one is better than the other. But if I take solely that concern of is it responsible, is it ethical to bring a child into 
circumstances that are not ideal, that helps to answer the question. Yeah. Um, I also want to acknowledge that it's never the right time to have a kid. That I know and have come to terms with yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, having a child will always be hard. Yeah. It, it is more of a question of given my understanding of science and technology, politics, economics, I don't know that there will be much of a world left for a child that I choose to bring into the world anew. So I don't know what that looks like. Um, I am not immune to family pressure. I am not unfamiliar with going to family get-togethers and being asked when I'm having kids. Mm. And the default answer up to this point is I already do. Uh, They don't live with me. I only get to see some of them four hours a week, some of them eight hours a week. Um, I am certainly not their legal guardian or anything, but I do consider them part of my family, and I'm part of their family. Um, I've been through very difficult things with the kids that we serve at Out Youth, and maybe that will be enough. If if even one of them survives because of me, and I'll be completely frank, if one of them chooses not to commit suicide because they think it's going to disappoint me, great. <laughs> yeah. Great. I, I would be happy with that as an outcome because I'd rather them be here. Of course, the benefit is that I don't have to live with a teenager full time. Yeah. Or pay for college. Or pay for college. <laughs> um, which, depending on who we elect in November, might not might ever be an issue anymore. Yeah. Fingers crossed. So I also have to acknowledge that my, my sister and my brother-in-law have the most adorable baby that has ever existed. So cute. Um, ever existed. No bias at all. Just fact. Ever existed. <laughs> sure. And part of the concern there, and I say this only half-jokingly, like, what if my kid is not as cute? Like, there is st- there is still very much a sibling rivalry sure. there. Also, your sister's kid looks a lot like you, and it's fascinating to me. Maybe I would be content to be unencumbered by the pressures and the stress and the exhaustion, the challenges of full-time parenthood, and instead content myself with the work that I already do and being the crazy anti-mame type character in my niece's life. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I do trust that the correct answer will present itself, but, uh, much mm. like when I came to discover my yeah. my inner identity. And until then, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, That's meant for you will are. not pass you for sure. And then I also... Th- always think about like the fact I was a nanny for a long time and the love I had for those kids you couldn't tell me I was any less their family member than anybody else just would have done anything for them Um, and then coming from a very large family and you know being got being a godmother and you know I have friends in town who are white families who have adopted black children and so they have their parents have been asking how do I make sure my child has community with people who look like them? Um, so helping them navigate that of like what it means to be a black person and finding a black barber for your child and all that sort of stuff and just like having their kid 
see other black people and the importance around that and just, you know, loving those kids as well. So, you know, having not even being sure I can have my own children, I've for a long time been come to terms with adoption is a very viable and brave choice. I think anyone who decides to take in a kid or love a kid that's quote unquote not your own is one of the most selfless things we can do. Um, and so it's kind of, I, and I would like to adopt an older kid between like five and 10. Um, just because having worked in social work, I also know that that is a very hard age group to get kids adopted in. Everyone wants the babies. Um, but yeah, um, it's been something I've been sitting with for a long time too, because I just think of the amount of work in my life and the things that I've been able to do with children and youth um, and what family looks like, but then also knowing that if we go the route we're still going in our political climate, that me adopting might not be an option for me either financially or because I identify as a queer person or because I will probably be a single mother. Knowing that you can want a kid and give it and have the ability to give it a good life and people could still tell you no is something that is really heavy that I've been sitting on. Um, so people who work in those people who do that work of helping kids to get adopted, you can be an ally <laughs> to people who want to adopt, who can offer good lives and, you know, things of the such to kids to do some advocating on that part. But, yeah. Also, you can always, I think you're the best aunt, by the way. <laughs> that kid is so cute. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> Her Instagram is my favorite thing. I cannot wait till we get to get up to shenanigans. Oh, she's so dang cute. My sister oh. is still very protective. but I It's her first it. child. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm, I am not criticizing in any way. Okay. Um, I understand it, and I would be exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. But as soon as she drops her guard, we're going on adventures. <laughs> I don't know why I picture you and the baby just, like, in a car with the top down. <laughs> just, like, Laverne and Shirley, just, uh -huh. like, all over Austin, right? Uh is there anything else you want to tell us about before we start to wrap up here? Any organizations, any websites, any other things you want the people to know about? So one of the things that I am entertaining and encourage folks that are listening, if you have an interest in this, to get in touch because it is certainly not something that I can do on my own. One of the most powerful things in writing trans was focusing in on the history of our people. We kind of hear this throwaway line in in the work that I do that, you know, what, trans kids just kind of appeared out of no, no. Trans people just, no. <laughs> Trans and non-binary people have existed all throughout time, all around the world. And in chapter one of my book, our book, um, I dug real deep into that. And there's a brilliant illustration uh, that was done by our illustrator that shows all of the different places and all the different words that have been used for our people. And the author's note that we wrote at the very beginning of our process encourages youth, 
or really any trans or non-binary person reading the book to remember that their ancestors were shamans, revered rulers. They were held up that in many ways our people at various times throughout history have been no less than gods. And taking that to heart, I'm very interested in getting to know my ancestors. So I would very much like to put together an anthology of trans and non-binary history from all over the world and try to learn more about the people that came before because I can hear them, but I can't make out what they're saying. Mm. And I trust that I'm not the only one that can hear it. And I trust that there are other people who very much want to know their ancestors as well. So I envision this being an anthology that comes from authors all around the world. Uh, I don't know how long it will take, but it has to start and it might as well start here. Uh, I also shared with Bree that I'm actually giving her a signed copy of Trans that will uh, be given away, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. I Do you have to give away? It'll, the, the, the details will be on Instagram when this episode comes out. Excellent. AKA, I'm still thinking of a way <laughs> to give away this To book. do the giveaway? It'll be something along the lines of leaving a review on the podcast and then liking the photo on Instagram or what have you. I don't know. We'll figure out the details. But we will be giving away the book probably at the end of February. So it gives people some time to listen and catch up and what have you. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So doing doing the pre-work of figuring out how to gather those stories. Um, you asked about websites. So Trans has its own website, thetransbook.com which carries on a long line of brands that I have created that start with the word the. (laughs) The Lone Star Diva being one of them. Um, The trans book is unique, and one of the things that I love about the way that we did the resource guide is that every resource has a short link at thetransbook.com so that, well, and a QR code, so that it's easier for folks to type things in because we were copying and pasting these very long YouTube links. I'm like, no kid's going to ever type in that entire link. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to type in that entire link. So let's give them a way to scan either a QR code or enter a short link. The benefit there is not only can we see which resources are most popular, but we also are able to update links over time. Mm. So the book continues to live on and be accurate even when certain resources go offline. And then... Of course, I always recommend that folks follow the trans book on all the social media as well as out youth. I almost said the out youth. I wonder if that's available. It is now. Yeah, probably. Should do the out youth. Um, Follow out youth on all the social channels because we have some pretty amazing news, new programs, new services, new ways of engaging with the community that are going to be coming out in the very near future that have been a long time coming and meet the needs of the community in ways that admittedly should have happened a long time ago, but they happen when they happen. Baby steps. I'll be sure to link all the stuff that we talked about today 
in the show notes. And then the last question I always ask is, what is the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? So in full transparency, Brie actually asked me this question well in advance. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that kept coming to mind is what I tell our kids at Out Youth. So my primary focus programmatically is youth ages 12 to 18. So as youth get closer and closer to 18, they start coming to me and asking questions. A lot of it having to do with adulthood and what I should do next. And over time I came to realize that they weren't actually asking that question. They were asking, you know, I'm about to leave here. What can I do to make you proud of me? And having grown up uh, in a family that made very clear what it was to be proud, kind of turned all of that around. And I tell them the same thing every time. So, you know, when I I run into you 10 years from now, I'm not going to ask you where you went to school. I'm not going to ask you what you studied if you even went to school. I'm not going to ask you what kind of job you have. I'm not going to ask you what kind of clothes you wear, what car you drive. I'm not going to ask you how much money you make. I'm going to ask you three things. Are you happy? Have you done as little harm in the world as possible? And are you more yourself today than you have been in all the days before? And if you can answer yes to all of those questions, I will be proud of you. And the dirty little secret is, even if they said no to all of those, I would still be proud of them because they were telling the truth. We would definitely have a very long conversation after they said no. Yeah. But we put far too much emphasis on things that really don't matter at the end of the day. I want my kids to be happy. I want them to be themselves, and I want them to have as little impact, negative impact, in the world (laughs) as possible. Have all the positive impact you want, kids. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored and excited and overwhelmed. I've been looking forward to this episode, and I was happy to have you here today. Also, let's not go like a month without seeing each other. (laughs) Yeah, that's been really weird, and I, I also want to point out that This is a unique experience for both of us, too. Mm -hmm. Bree and I worked together for almost two years Mm -hmm. and never really had a chance to have these kinds of conversations either because of the nature of the work. Yeah. So let that be a reminder to everyone else out there that don't let too much time pass between having deep conversations like these, whether you record them or not. Yeah. Well... That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbriepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This podcast was recorded at Capital Factory in downtown Austin, Texas. And a special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music. And I will talk to you all next week. 